0: see Well, happy Mother's Day. I want to welcome everybody today. We're so glad you're here. And I do want to say a special word to all the moms who are here, uh, the moms who have loved us even when we were not very lovable, the moms who worked so hard to make our houses homes, the moms who prayed for us and wouldn't stop the moms who shaped us, made us what we are today. And we want to honor you and thank you for being who you are. And to those of you who are here this morning grieving maybe the loss of a mother or maybe a mother's absence, we grieve with you. And to those of you moms who are right now, this moment, up to your armpits in dirty diapers (laughs) and cooking meals, doing laundry and chauffeuring children to little league baseball and softball games we want to salute you because you are amazing. We love you very much. Happy Mother's Day. Well, I want to invite you to open your Bibles uh, to the book of Acts to chapter 19. And what we're going to be looking at today is the apostle Paul as he launches his third missionary journey. And he does this in the world-class city of Ephesus. And I'm going to do things a little bit differently today. I'm going to be walking you through this story briefly, and and then we're going to take a look at some important truths about idolatry, which is a subject that Christ followers today hardly talk about, hardly think about, though it is actually at the very heart of the Bible's teaching. I'm calling this message, Jesus is better than idols. And what we're going to see today is the reality that our core sin, the sin that is under every sin, is the sin of idolatry. You see, the Bible teaches that God created us in His image to love Him and worship Him above all things. And the essence of sin is choosing to love and worship something else besides God. And the storyline of the Bible actually is about God confronting our idolatry and saving us from the worship of false gods. You see, following God means that you begin more and more to see God for who He truly is. God is God, and you live, you actually live in that reality. And there are many people, maybe some of you here today, that that have kind of a distorted understanding of what Christianity is about, what it means to be a Christian. A lot of people think following God means that God gives you a get-out-of-hell deal, and in return, you agree to be a little bit more moral and to go to church. But the heart of following God, the heart of salvation is seeing God for who He is and loving God as He is. See, God did not create us just to keep some rules. God created us to love Him and worship Him and serve Him and know Him. If you get that, then you're going to see how Acts 19 applies to your life today. Because Acts 19 is actually the story of Paul taking the gospel to this city of Ephesus It's the story of how the gospel challenges the most cherished false gods of that city. And it's also about how people get violent as a result. Acts 19 should mirror the story of God coming into your life because when God comes into your life, God always challenges your most precious idols. And sometimes you will react violently. You know, sometimes... People like us, 21st century people, we look at a story like this and we roll our eyes and we think, it's these are primitive people. We're modern. We don't worship statues like they do. But as we saw a couple of weeks ago, the gods that they worshiped were always a means to an end. Idols are always that way. Their gods promised them power and money and sex and food and family stability, all the things that we today still think make for the good life. They thought that back then. Those were the things they were really chasing in their idolatry. And what we need to see is that we worship the same things that they did. The only difference is that their worship was overt and conscious our ours so often is covert and subconscious. Now, we learn in the Bible that each heart has its own temple filled with idols. And when our idols are challenged, we may react just as violently as these people in Ephesus do. And that's why this story that we're going to read and we're going to study is so relevant to us. Plus, I think you're going to see it's also just wildly entertaining. Now, let me give you some basic information to kind of set things up. I want to show you a map like we've been doing as we've worked our way through these journeys of Paul. Here's a map of the first part of Paul's missionary journey, and you can see that Ephesus was located on the western edge of what we know today as modern-day Turkey. Ephesus was the capital of the Roman province of Asia. Some fast facts about Ephesus, we, we know that Ephesus was the richest city and the richest region in the Roman Empire. It was the center of trade in the province of Asia because it was the region's primary port. It was cosmopolitan and multi-ethnic. It's probably the third or fourth largest city in the world at this time. Ephesus also had one of the largest libraries in the entire world, and it probably had the world's largest temple dedicated to the goddess Artemis. This temple was four times bigger than the Parthenon. And it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Uh, the, the statue of Artemis, which was the centerpiece of this temple, was actually carved out of a meteorite that had fallen from the sky. Ephesus, you see, was all about Artemis. She was their city's goddess. She was the protector of their city. They put their hope in her. She guaranteed their prosperity. And you need to keep all that in mind. I want to start with... Three truths that Acts 19 teaches us about how Jesus works as we work our way through this story. And I want you to keep in mind as we do this a phrase that Luke uses in verse 23 to describe Paul's ministry in Ephesus. He says, There arose a major disturbance about the way. And really, what we're seeing throughout this chapter is disturbance. We are going to see disturbance in the synagogue, we're going to see disturbance in the supernatural realm, we're going to see disturbance in the streets. Here's the first thing. Go ahead and write this down in your message notes. We see that Jesus defeats idols through the word. Now, verses 8 through 10, Luke writes, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. I want you to see that Paul's strategy to share the gospel and to defeat idols was to teach the word of the Lord. That's it. He started in the synagogue. He taught there until people stopped listening. Then he moved on. He found a public lecture hall. He rented that lecture hall. He began to hold daily discussions with anyone who would come and listen and dialogue with him. He probably did this, scholars say, for several hours a day during what we would, what we would call the siesta hours. It was 11 to 4 in the culture at that time. Uh, Tyrannus would have been resting after lecturing in the morning, and he didn't have anything going on in his lecture hall. So he rented it, and Paul took advantage of that. Paul did this daily for two years. And Luke is telling us that Paul taught so faithfully that all the Jews and all the Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. If you go down to verse 20, which is kind of a summary verse In the narrative, Luke says, in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. And what Luke is doing here in terms of his literary style is called, he's bracketing verse 10 and verse 20. He starts talking about the word of the Lord. He closes with the word of the Lord. He's emphasizing to us that the main thing Paul did was to explain and to teach God's word. And he is telling us through this that if we want to see hearts and lives change, if we want to see cities turned around, then we need to do the same thing. And you might hear that, and it might seem kind of hopeless. It may seem a little futile. I mean, how is, in this case, one little guy walking into this massive, powerful city, deciding to teach God's word every day for two years, how in the world is that ever going to change anything? We could think that about our day today. How is us? Proclaiming and sharing and teaching God's word going to make an impact, but Acts nineteen shows us that it did back then, and the gospel has been changing lives ever since then, up until today. It still does today. God always uses the preaching and the teaching and the sharing of His word to birth spiritual life. I need to be clear: this is more, far, far more than just about Christ followers, uh, pastors. I should say preaching sermons on Sundays like I'm doing right now this is also about people like you all of us together part of the body of Christ us meeting Jesus in his word and then us helping others meet him by opening the scriptures to them and explaining to them what the scriptures mean we can all be involved in this it happens in small groups it can happen one-on-one it happens in coffee shops and it happens in homes it can happen with anyone anywhere. Jesus defeats idols through the Word. Secondly, we see that when Jesus defeats idols, He disturbs our lives. Now, God's usual way to open hearts is through the Word, but sometimes He works in overtly supernatural ways. That's what we see in verses 11 and following. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. So evidently there was like this local ghostbuster squad in <laughs> Ephesus called the Seven Sons of Sceva from the firm Sceva, 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 and Sceva. And they see what's going on and they think, this is pretty cool. This guy Paul so powerful, he like sneezes on a hanky and the hanky can cast <laughs> out demons. And so they start going up to demons themselves, and they start saying to the demons, I command you to come out by the name of Jesus, uh, who that guy Paul uh, always talks about. Verse 15 says, One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Verse 16, Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Now, more literally, verse 16 says, The demon-possessed man mastered them, and he beat them so badly. Luke writes a little more literally, they, they, they ran out naked and wounded. Now, I want you to notice he says naked and wounded. I, I'm not sure why he had to say and wounded, because if you get in a fight wearing pants... And when the fight's over, your pants are gone. We can assume that you are wounded, like in every way, physically, of course, emotionally, also psychologically, spiritually, every way, right? Verse 17, when this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. And this is a description of of God disturbing lives. There is fear and reverence there, high honor there. Jesus is becoming more glorious to people. They are being drawn to him. Verse 18 says, many of those who believe now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. Now, in Ephesus, it was big business to collect spiritual incantations and put them in books and sell them. And, and people did this. It was their attempt to to exercise power over the the spiritual realm. And it says when they calculated the value of the scrolls that had been brought to be burned, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. Scholars say that in today's dollars, this is probably worth about $7 million. So it is a very, very big deal. And it just shows us anytime God is working in a group of people, believers get convicted of secret sin and they confess it. They bring it out into the open. And you know, when God is working in churches today, if we allow secret sin to come into our individual lives, that can hinder the work of God. And I have to ask us, is there any place where God may not be working here because we individually may need to confess our sin? Do we need to get rid of sin? See, when Jesus defeats idols, he disturbs our lives. He changes us. He turned things around third thing we see is that when Jesus defeats idols he disturbs our cities all of this going on gets the attention of a businessman in Ephesus named Demetrius verse 23 it says about that time there arose a great disturbance about the way a silversmith named Demetrius who made silver shrines of Artemis brought in no little business for the craftsmen and so he starts getting worried because people are turning to God and as a result not buying his little shrines anymore. And so he calls a meeting of the Silver Shrine Trade Guild. He calls the craftsmen together. It says in verse 25, along with the workmen in related trades, and said, men, you know we receive a good income from this business. And it was big business. Artemis' temple was at the center of the economy of Ephesus. It was in addition to be, being a center of worship for the people in the city, it was a major tourist attraction for the region. People would come in from everywhere to worship at the temple, and they would need inns in which to sleep. They would need places for, for eating. And you probably, I'm sure, you know, back then, just like today, you had the people who were selling Artemis trinkets and kitsch, you know, like bumper stickers that said, Artemis is my co-pilot, or, you know, pictures of Artemis eating the Darwin fish, that sort of thing. and, And and Demetrius says, "If this keeps going on, we're going to lose our jobs." Verse 26, he says, "And you see in here how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. And we don't really see this in the English text. It's a little more clear in the Greek text, but the way Luke writes this, indicates that this was kind of a slogan with Paul. Paul evidently was always saying man-made gods are no gods at all, over and over again. And if you stop to think about it, doesn't that seem kind of self-evident? A God you can concoct with your mind and you can make with your hands. I mean, what kind of God really could that be? You're really worshiping that? See, but I think when we think like that, I think about people today who will want to redefine God, who will say, well, my God would never do that, as if they could define what the true God would be and do. Any God that you concoct with your mind, by definition, is not worthy of worship, The real God, friends, should always be able to challenge you and offend you and make you mad and explode your categories. And if that doesn't ever happen with you in your relationship with God, then there's a good chance that your God is just a projection of you. Demetrius goes on, verse 27, he says, There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, But also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. And so he just whips everyone into a frenzy. And they kind of flash mob over to the amphitheater, which uh, still is there today. It held about 25,000 people. It was an enormous place. Uh, Ruins are still there for us to see. And verses 28 to 32 tell us what happens next. They tell us about the riot that ensued. And basically, these people gathered in the amphitheater, and they started crying out as the amphitheater filled for two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. This is a crowd about 25% larger than a capacity crowd at Oracle Arena. And I just think that the atmosphere would have been sort of like NBA Finals, Game 7, we're playing the calves, and there's only a one-point difference in the game. It's that kind of energy, that kind of noise, that kind of tension. Everyone is on their feet yelling, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. I think at one time they started, one side would go, Arda, and the other side would go, Miss, and Arda, and Miss. And this just goes on for two hours. Now, Paul, he wants to go speak to them, but his friends are... I think, a little wiser than he was in this moment. And he says, really, there's, they say, really, there's no sense in you going in there just to die. It was utter chaos, utter confusion. Verse 32 says that there were people there shouting one thing, uh, other people shouting another thing. And it says most of the people there didn't even know why they were there. Kind of like a lot of riots even today, right? Well, finally, the crowd disperses. And Paul and his friends live uh, to serve God a- another day. Now, with that in mind, I want to show you five things that you need to understand about idols in your life. Five truths that Acts 19 teaches us about idols. And then we'll conclude briefly uh, by seeing how the gospel that Paul preached would confront Our idols. Here's the first thing. You can write this down in your message notes. Idols are anything we look to for security and joy apart from God. That's what Artemis did. She was the protector of the city. She gave the city prosperity. With her, they believed. They were guaranteed security and joy. And I just want to ask you, what is that in your life? About what do you think? If I have this, if this is present in my life, I'll have security and joy. What is that? Influence? Success, physical beauty, money, or romance, or respect, having children. Is it having your children live close by? Is it a possession of some kind? Is it the size of your retirement plan? Here's what you need to know if you don't realize this, it's very important. Idols are not usually bad things. I'm going to give you a couple of ways to understand this. A couple of statements. I've shared these with you before. The first one is this. An idol is a good thing that we make an ultimate thing. Something we think will give us security and joy. It may be good in and of itself, but we make it more than it should ever be. And we think if we don't have it, we don't think we can have security and joy. In other words, an idol is a good thing that becomes a God thing and thereby becomes a bad thing. And if marriage for you is that thing, then you will believe that the good life begins only when you meet that one person. There's an older romantic comedy, many of you remember, when Harry met Sally. Um, And in the climactic scene, Harry comes to Sally and he says, when you realize you want to spend the rest of your life with somebody, you want the rest of your life to start as soon as possible. You say, I haven't seen that movie. Well, just insert every other romantic comedy ever made. Same plot, same stuff. Amen from the guys, right? You know, that's how it goes. But the message is, get this, you'll be happy. Miss this, your life is over. Maybe you're single right now and you want to get married. Could you be happy and content remaining single? I I didn't ask if that was your preference. Could you be happy and content? Because if you can't, you've probably turned romance into an idol. You see, when you lose a good thing from your life, you are sad. But if you lose a God thing, an ultimate thing, you are devastated. And there is a huge difference between sad and devastated. It's okay to want things. But if those things become the source of your security and joy, they are idols. Could you be okay if you never really make progress in your career? if your big ship, however you define it, never comes in, if you never have kids, if your health never improves, if your work never gets noticed, if you never accomplish anything on your bucket list, if how you have suffered is never made right in this life. See, what do you think will give you security and joy apart from God? Or what do you think that about that there is no way that you could have security and joy without that thing, even if you have God? Whatever that is, that is your Artemis. Second thing, idols engage the deepest emotions in our hearts. As we see in this story, when you threaten idolatry, people get violent. They get angry because their idols are their lifeblood. Their idols are the protectors of their city. And again, I want to ask you, what is that in your life? What is the protector of your city? What is that thing that if you lose it or if you never gain it will make you despair? Again, lose a good thing, you're sad, but you lose a God thing and you're devastated. See, one of the things that I've come to realize is that many of my deepest emotions are connected to idols. Now, here's the thing. Uh, I probably, as a pastor, worry about things that you would probably think are weird, okay? (laughs) Like a lot of pastors, I want to be successful in ministry. I want to be approved by by people. And so when I look at the deepest fears in my heart, it is usually tied to the loss of that God, some area like that. You know, I can worry about things happening in the church that would never seem like any big deal to most of you. I can worry about preaching bad sermons. I can worry about, like, you know, kind of the nightmare dream as I show up here um, at the church on Sunday to preach a sermon and, and to have our service, and I find out that every one of you has decided on that day to go to some other church. And the only people here are me and Dana, and she's listening to some other pastor's sermon on podcast because she's, <laughs> she's tired of my preaching. You know, a lot of pastors are like that. It's kind of an interesting thing. Ministry is a great place for guys with the idol of success to hide. Can I live without ministry success? See, what is the idol for you in your particular place in life? Here's another way of coming at it, and maybe you've never thought about this, but it's very important. The question is, who are you unable to forgive? When you cannot forgive someone, it is because what they did caused such a deep resentment in you that you just can't let it go. And it might be because they attacked or they threatened your idol. Now, I'm not saying that what they did wasn't bad. I'm saying that the reason you can't forgive is that what they did goes down to the deepest part of who you are and it threatens your very being. Tim Keller uh, told a story of two women in his church a number of years ago. They were both facing divorce, and both of them had a son that the prospect of divorce was really affecting in a negative way. And he said one of these women was a pretty new Christian, but she was able, uh, through counseling, to forgive her husband and to reconcile her marriage. He said the other woman, who had been a Christian for decades, much, much longer, she wasn't able to forgive. And Keller said the reason was this. For this more supposedly mature Christian, when her marriage went bad, she had become emotionally dependent on her son. She had turned her son into an idol. And so when her conflict with her husband began to affect her son, she could not forgive her husband because anything that messed with her son was threatening her to the core of her being. And she went on to divorce. Her heart was controlled by an idol. Resentment, you just cannot move past may be the sign of an idol and it's kind of an ironic thing maybe you've noticed this how when we idolize something it seems to ultimately keep us from being able to enjoy it at all you obsess over things and you can't enjoy them because you depend on them maybe you can think of it like this those things become like a life preserver to you you can't enjoy a life preserver it's just there to save you not to be enjoyed If romance is your life preserver, you become a codependent spouse because you need that person and you need that romance or whatever it is so desperately to validate you. On the other hand, if you're single and if marriage is your life preserver, well, actually my counsel to you is don't get married. Someone once said, you're not ready to date until you are ready not to date. See, when you're ready not to date, that means you're not looking for a human being to give you security and joy. If you are, and if you get married, then you might well destroy that marriage by putting your spouse into the place where only God ought to be. How about parenting? There can be idolatry in the family, parents to children, parents who depend on their family, their kids especially, For security and joy often become controlling and overprotective, even smothering. Some of you moms today may be wondering, am I like that? Well, ask your kids, see what happens. (laughs) Or have you ever noticed that people who seem to have a lot of something seem not to be able to enjoy it, like money? People most dissatisfied with money are often the people who have a whole lot of it. And then why is it that sometimes women who develop eating disorders are often very beautiful, very physically attractive. Maybe a good thing has become an ultimate thing. Maybe what should have just been a tool has become a life preserver. Maybe you worship something that could not sustain the weight of your soul. I'm just saying, if you look to beauty or money, for example, to sustain your soul, there is no amount of money, there is no amount of beauty that will ever be able to do that. Only God can do that. Idols engage the deepest emotions in our hearts. I want to tell you something as your pastor. If I am doing my job right, I will be challenging your idols, like Paul did. And sometimes I'm going to make you mad. The truth is, if I am not ever making you mad when I preach, either I'm doing a bad job or you're not listening. (laughs) Do you know? What sermons, when I preach them, that I get the most criticism on? Anybody want to guess? Money. Money. Why? Well, because in our culture, money is an idol to most people. And when you preach on money, you're always messing with someone's idol, and they don't like it. And a lot of times, they start making noise. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. That happens a lot after I (laughs) preach on money. You can write this down. Third thing, idols need us to protect them. Demetrius says, we need to protect Artemis. We can't let her be deposed of her meteorite magnificence. Now, here's the irony. Wasn't she supposed to protect them? Now they think that they need to protect her. Here's a question for you. What do you feel desperate to protect in your life? Keyword desperate. If you feel like life without a good marriage is empty, you're going to obsess about it. If you're single, you're going to ask, what if I miss out? I never get married. Some people who obsess with this are are paranoid about how, how they look or about how old they are getting. Sometimes they become serial daters, moving from relationship to relationship. And as they get older and older, they're terrified of being single. But if you are dependent on romance as a married person, This happens sometimes. You can start obsessing that your marriage is not good enough. And sometimes, I've seen this as I've talked with people, they start fantasizing about their friends' marriages or maybe about a new marriage or maybe about this. No one wants to admit this, but it happens. They start fantasizing about the premature death of their spouse because then, you know, you could get in relationship with someone else and not feel guilty. Some of you are going, that's really weird. And some of you who will never admit it, are thinking, yeah, I thought of that. If it's kids that you're depending on, you get real clingy with your kids because if kids are what gives your life meaning, then you must protect them. Now, I know it's true, of course, parents are supposed to protect their kids, but some parents, and you know this, I don't really need to tell you, do I? They are always controlling their kids' environments. They never let their children fail. They don't want their children ever to experience any kind of pain, and they say they're protecting their kids, but what they're really protecting is themselves. They can't see That the ultimate point of parenting is not to hang on, but to let go. And they won't let their kids become what God wants because they need their kid to be a certain thing so that they can have a certain kind of life. Do you understand idolatry ultimately is always about one person and that person is me? It's us, right? See, if money is the protector of your city... You're always worried about whether you'll have enough in the future. How can you protect it? And of course, you can't give. How could you give away the thing that protects your life and your city? You can't even obey God. If reputation is your idol, then you always have to protect your reputation. And that is the reason why some of you, and you know who you are, maybe, others of you around you, they know this about you. You can't ever handle any criticism about you, about anything from anybody, no matter how small it is. got to protect your idol. you got to protect your idol. Number four, idols demand sacrifices to keep them happy. This whole system in Ephesus was really built on appeasing Artemis, making sure she was not displeased. And you need to understand idols are always like that. Idols always say to us, if you want me, you will have to sacrifice for me. It's like this, when a guy cheats in business, it is typically not because he is a compulsive liar. It's usually that there is something on the other side of that cheating that he is willing to compromise for, that he is willing to, to do whatever it takes to get, whether it's a promotion or a raise or, or more money or that, that, that final deal that will make his life complete. This is what's going to make the good life. And he just needs to sacrifice his integrity to get the money that he thinks he wants, the money that's his idol. I was reminded recently of that show from a few years ago, Breaking Bad. And it's really the whole point of the show. You have the, this guy through this show over the seasons who just keeps making disastrous, horrible decisions. And the whole time, he keeps telling his wife, I'm doing this for you. I'm doing this for our family. And he gets to the end. There's so much destruction. And he finally admits, I did it for me. I wanted the power. I wanted the joy that I thought I would get from the money that this would give me. This is why the Bible says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's telling us that the love of money is what triggers all the sins and all the compromises that we make. It's the love of money that's the root sin behind all the other sins. Why do you lie? Why do you cheat? Why do you trample and use other people? It's because of this root idol, this love of money. This is true in so many areas. There are many many women, many girls who are dating a non-Christian and they're Christians and and they're not doing it because they want to tie themselves all their lives to a non-Christian guy, and they want to have that guy raise their kids. I mean, I talked to them, I asked them, why are you doing this? You know what the Bible says, and it boils down. They usually say, I don't really know, but it boils down always to they simply cannot stand the prospect of being alone. And so if they have to go against God's will to get a man, they say, that's what I'm going to do. In other words, they've decided that their life security and joy is going to be found in a relationship with someone else. It's the same thing with uh, women who are right now living in immorality with their boyfriends, most of the time, they're not doing it because they like have sex drives they can't control. It's actually because they need the God of affection and love, and this is their means to that end. And the irony is this. The irony is this. He's using you, but you're using him. Both of you have different idols And both of you are willing to sacrifice obedience to the real God for the sake of your idol. Some of you here won't obey God in your finances. And it's not because you're just a stingy person. It's just that obtaining your idols of comfort or or security with a larger bank account or joy in some possession you think will complete your life. Those things demand that you not give and be generous with God. I mean, we could go on and on and on. But here's the tragedy. You have to see this. The idol is never satisfied. It's never satisfied. You you sacrifice for the idol, and the idol will always demand more. William James, uh, who is one of the most influential philosophers in American history, once said this about success in his life. And I can't quote him directly in church. He called success a a B-I-T-C-H goddess. He said, no matter what I give to her, she always demanded more. He said, I gave her my family. Then she demanded my health. Then she demanded my integrity. He said, there is nothing she has not taken from me, and she still shows up wanting more. Have you ever read the Bible accounts or maybe accounts of other cultures where they have child sacrifice, and you find yourself thinking, how could they do that? How could parents take their their baby boy or baby girl and, and, and put them on an altar and kill them or burn them up. How could anyone ever do that? And you don't have to think really hard, do you, to understand that we have our own versions of that. It happens around us all the time. Some of us are doing that. We sacrifice our children's well-being to the idols of our success We're not there for our kids because we have to be successful because we cannot imagine life being good without that standard, that status, whatever it is. And so if kids get in the way of that, we pursue our idols and our kids pay the price. And some of you know what I'm talking about because you've been that child. Number five, idols are empowered by demonic forces. There's a lot of psychological elements involved, but we also need to keep in mind there's demonic Uh, elements in as well whenever idolatry is rampant so are demons and it's a tragedy that we fail to recognize today that there are spiritual forces at work because satan in our day has figured out that he can do a lot more damage by keeping himself cloaked than he can by overt terror and by demon possession Do you understand that Satan has been preaching the same lie in every idol that he preached to our first parents in the forbidden fruit? He says, if you obtain this, you will be like God. You'll have security and confidence and joy. You will never die. And about what has he said that to you? What is he holding before you asking if you want security and joy? It's right here. Just take this. See, it is the same demonic lie. Even if he is not making your eyes roll around in your head or floating you six feet above your bed, see, truth is that's Satan's least impressive work. Last thing I want you to see very quickly, there are three ways that the gospel confronts our idolatry. Paul preached a gospel that really had one major point, and that point was God is better than your idols. And I think there are three reasons he says this, Here's the first one. He says only the true God can give us life. Paul said he's not a God made with hands. The true God is the creator of all. And that means his love is more faithful, more tender, more fulfilling than romance. Do you understand the arms that you are aching for in romance are really his arms? His promises are more secure and more reliable than money because God is a market that never crashes, that never loses its value. His presence is more life-sustaining than creature comfort. Psalm 1611 says, in your presence, Lord, is fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. His future is more fulfilling than a family could ever be. His attention and affections far, far better than the praises of people. Jonah 2.8 says, Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Jeremiah 2.13, God is speaking. He says, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. We sin in idolatry first against God, and then we sin against ourselves. We only wound ourselves. Only the true God can give us life. Secondly, only the true God can protect us. The true God, he doesn't need you to protect him. He protects you. That's why David said, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. That's why David could write, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? I don't need to obsess over romance, money, or success. I trust in you, God. I rest in you, Lord. You provide for me. And then, third, only the true God will sacrifice for us. See, the true God offered his own sacrifice. Idols demand sacrifices from us. God sacrifices for us. Money and success, don't you know this, are always saying, if you don't do enough to obtain me, I will destroy you. And if you fail me, I will make you miserable. The true God says to you and to me, you did fail me, but I'm going to save you. Jesus says, you did something that earned my curse, but I'm going to curse myself for you. Friends, hear me. That is the God that you should love and give your life to. Amen. In the Old Testament, the book of Hosea presents Israel as this unfaithful people who have given themselves to idols. And God compares his people to a prostitute who's given herself away to countless lovers. It's meant to be a picture of our idolatry. And God says to his people, I had to divorce you forever, but I'm not going to. I'm going to bring you back. And he, he did that by taking on Israel's shame. And hundreds of years later, we came to understand what that means in a far greater way. When God's son Jesus went to the cross, Jesus showed up, God in the flesh, and he was stripped naked because that's the punishment for a prostitute to shame them. They hung him on a cross, and there he took our shame, our curse. There he died in our place so we could be reconciled to him. A pastor in a church had a young couple who got married. Both of them came from very rough backgrounds. Five years into a very rocky marriage, the wife came to her husband and said, for five years, I've been cheating on you. I cheated on you when we were engaged. I cheated on you the first year of our marriage. I've been cheating on you the whole time. And I don't want to be like that. You deserve better than that. I'm sorry, but that's what I did. And I know you're going to leave. And the pastor said, that's what he did. He walked out of the house. She thought he was gone forever. But about three hours later, he showed up with a box. Inside the box was a white wedding dress. And he said to her, I want you to put this on. The first time you wore this dress, it was a lie. This time, I want you to put it on as a statement of what God intends you and me to be. Because both of us are really like you. Both of us, in God's eyes, have given ourselves away to numerous lovers, and yet God has clothed us in the righteousness of Christ. God has changed my entire life, and if he can do that in my life, he can do that in our marriage. So will you put this dress on as a picture of how God can make us new creations? The true God sacrificed for you. He was cursed in your place. Tim Keller said Jesus is the only God whom, when you obtain him, will satisfy you. And when you fail him, will forgive you. Jesus is better than idols, he's better than your idols. He's better than all our idols. Will you turn away from your idols today? Will you turn to Jesus in trust today? Let's bow our heads. We're going to pray together. Father God, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your love how you have loved us, Father, by giving us your son. And we confess to you, even now, Father, you are better than our idols. We ask you to forgive us when we have looked to other things for what you only can give us. Help us today to turn from idols and to turn to you. We want your life, Father, the only true life. And we know that it comes through the gift of of your Son, Jesus, to us, his death for our life. Thank you for Jesus, most of all. Father, we pray these things now in his name, the name above all names. And all God's people together say,